This Ends at Prom is a critical analysis podcast and is being produced in the midst of the SAG-AFTRA strike. The WGA may have made their tentative deal, but the members of SAG-AFTRA are still striking today. Without the labor of the actors currently on strike, the movie being reviewed here wouldn't exist. For more information, please visit the Freelance Solidarity Project at freelancesolidarity.org. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I... What an excellent day for an exorcism prom party. I mean, it feels like the first day of fall right now. We're recording and we're like both in blankets because it's like 67 degrees and it's like, oh, this is nice. And this is how you know it's the start of spooky season on the podcast. (laughs) Oh, BJ, how excited are you? I'm so excited. It's your favorite... (laughs) Okay, I was going to be like, it's your favorite time of year. And I'm like, no, well, I mean, we also have a month dedicated to musicals. Um, but this probably trumps that. It is. May musical month is like my personal, like my, I don't believe in guilty pleasures, but if I did, that's, your, be that's my, your pet project. That's being, my pet project. Being like, guys, musicals are good. <laughs> but spooky season, this is my absolute favorite time of year. I am so excited. And I love that we are kicking it off with another very old film. And yeah. I, oh, I can't wait to talk about it. We are kicking off October's month of teen girl horror movies with the teen girl horror movie of all teen girl horror movies, even though most people don't realize that this is a teen girl horror movie. Mm-hmm. We're talking about The Exorcist. Yeah, it it felt right. Like there's a new one coming out. It's turning 50 this year. True. It's just, this is the right time to do The Exorcist. And in the way that we've done Ginger Snaps, in the way that we've done Raw, The Exorcist has a whole lot of similar DNA to those films as far Mm -hmm. as like a coming of age story is concerned. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. And I do want to make one thing kind of clear at the start. The Exorcist is one of those films that has been talked about and hyper-analyzed and has been the center of documentaries and think pieces and books and all sorts of analysis for the last half a century. Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard not to tread familiar ground. But because of what we do here at This Ends at Prom, this is not going to be an episode about The Exorcist where, actually, The Exorcist is really about Father Karras and his lack of faith. I don't give a flying shit about these men. That's not the focus of this episode. Mm -hmm. We're here to talk about Reagan McNeil, Chris McNeil, and the way that society is goddamn terrified of teen girls. I mean, Linda Blair, 
She's, she's real scary. Oh my God, she's so <laughs> remarkable in this movie. Um, so this is definitely going to be highly emphasized on the teen girl aspect of this film. So if you are someone coming to this show that is not familiar with what we do and we're just really excited because, ooh, yay, a podcast is talking about The Exorcist and you want us to talk about the crisis of faith of a bunch of priests, that's not happening. No. So early on when we did this show, we did a movie called Yes, God, Yes, which I think is the shortest movie we've ever done. Yes, like, it is. <laughs> I started using like the letterbox just to get statistics for the podcast, not to actually use the letterbox correctly. But I was just like, huh, that's a neat little fact that I like. Um, and I was like watching that movie going like, man, fuck religion movies. Even if like I, we're, we're on the same page, like I am just so not down. And I think it was like. We were coming off the Trump administration. Like mm -hmm. there was a lot of really intense religious doctorate. We were still like in Ohio at the time. Mm -hmm. Like there was so many things. I've I've softened mm -hmm. a little bit. I'm not so aggressive about like religion is the hero. Mm -hmm. That said, I'm like I'm still not on the side of like the Catholic priests per se. Oh hell no. We're on the same side by virtue of like I want this clearly, child to be alive. <laughs> clearly, we both want to save this child, but not because like I think that Jesus is the answer. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's that's not gonna be the focus of this episode. We're instead going to dive very deep into the way. Not only did this movie affect, you know, culture, uh, what it has to say about second wave feminism in the 70s, but also how this affected both Linda Blair and Ellen Burstein's lives because mm -hmm. it did forever, mm -hmm. <laughs> continues to do so to this day. Um, but my first question for you is, like, when did you see The Exorcist for the first time? Oh, it would have been on TV, which is, you know. Weird. I mean, it, it would play during the Halloween season for mm -hmm. on like probably Turner Classic Movies or whatever. Just like whoever was doing a Halloween block of films. Uh, the, I, I'm sure that that is not the ideal way. I would love to actually retroactively go back and look at whatever a TV edit of this movie looks like. Because um, I'm sure there's some like bonkers decisions and a whole lot of stuff that is just straight up cut out of it. But yeah, no, it was it's one of those movies. Like it was... In similar way where we talked about, like, American Graffiti, where, you know, a 50-year-old movie, people put it on, like, the top whatever lists of all time, and The Exorcist was always called the scariest movie of all time. Mm -hmm. And so I saw it, and I was like, yeah, I mean, it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know if it's scary. Even as a child, I'm just like, yeah, I mean, demons aren't real. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the devil's not real. I'm not worried about that. But, yeah, it was just, The Exorcist is one of those movies that's just always been around. Mm -hmm. and. I think it's been a long time since I've actually sat down and watched like the movie itself. Mm -hmm. uh, I, it was kind of shocking. Like I wanted to get a timestamp on it where I was like, man, it's like 40 minutes into this movie when the exorcist that, you know, starts to happen. Yeah. Like we're in like the Middle East. There's like things where mom's like a movie star. Like there's a long wind up before we even get start to get to the stuff where like Reagan is saying like you're all gonna die and peeing on carpet mm -hmm. much before like she starts like thrashing around in bed like like that all stuff comes closer to the hour mark of this yeah. two hour movie yeah <laughs> which is like I, it was a movie that I've seen most of the times in progress so I didn't realize like how long of an intro it has mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot of groundwork that's being laid that I again we'll talk about it because I think it's very very important mm -hmm. um, what about you what's your uh, history with this movie 
Um, I mean, I've seen The Exorcist about 167 times, and it keeps getting funnier every time I see it. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> no, I, I watched this way, way, way too young. Um, well, yeah, that's the story of everything. In every your life. every horror movie I've ever seen, I saw probably way too young. But this one I distinctly remember because my babysitter at the time um, had an older sister, and so occasionally my little sister and I would go over to her house and like the you know she was like the middle child and the middle child would be babysitting us and the older sister would be downstairs with her friends like watching movies mm -hmm. and they all loved horror movies like they were the first people i ever knew that had a chucky doll and it was before like the chucky dolls were mass produced that before you could, you buy could get at them Spencer's. in Spencer's. Yeah, yeah so it was like not a common thing to see somebody with a chucky doll in their house and what? it like scared the shit out of me did he have a me. normal face or a fucked up face uh, he had a normal face it was oh, a good so guy he doll. was a good guy yeah they had a good guy doll and i was just like uh, oh my god um because again like wasn't used to seeing it but her older sister was watching the exorcist with some friends and i asked the babysitter i was like i want to go downstairs i want to watch the exorcist and she was like if you do that my sister's going to be fucking mad because she doesn't want one little kids hanging around and two if you get scared like it's going to like ruin the vibe i don't know what we actually said in the 90s but yeah. it was not ruin the vibe it's going to ruin the whole night cuz then we're going to cradle like a crying child who was terrified right so i was like mm, i bet i'll be fine they won't even know that i'm there so i went down there and i like kind of hid in the back of the room like by myself just like sitting in the corner watching it and being so unbelievably scared but not being able to express how scared I was because I didn't want them to kick me out yeah so I just kind of sat there alone and was like traumatizing myself uh -huh. and then the movie was over and they turned the lights on and they see me in the corner and they were like whoa how long have you been here and I was like oh I watched the whole movie and they're like and you're not scared I was like nah I'm cool and then I I'm went home up. <laughs> and then I went home later that <laughs> night and my mom was like how was your night and I was like oh it's fine I actually got to hang out with older sister my mom's like, oh, really? She let you hang out with her and her friends? I was like, I mean, I just kind of sat in the back and watched a movie. And they're like, what movie did you watch? Well, um, I missed the title of it, but there was a girl and she was possessed by the devil. And there were priests that had to like save her from the devil. And my mom was like, you watched The Exorcist? And I'm like, yeah, I guess I did. And she's like, are you okay? Mm. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I did not sleep that night. I just yeah. like laid in my bed and I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm going to see that fucking face again. Because that's the thing that got me. Like the stuff with Reagan was fine. Like I could deal with that. It was Pazuzu. Pazuzu's fucking face. Like Ellen Dietz's face. I was yeah. like, no. Couldn't deal with it. Danhausen lurking in the dark. <laughs> right. It just it was too much for me. And like to this day, sometimes like when I'm in like a room that's really, really dark, I have this like lingering fear of like. Man, if Pazuzu's face shows up right now, I'm going to be really unhappy. Man, it's just going to really harsh my mellow. Right. <laughs> like, I'm trying to remember here. Speaking of the face, um, is it, I haven't watched this video in a really long time, but like that YouTube video of you're watching a car slowly drive and then a Skrubuki face shows up. It's Reagan. I was like, isn't that Linda Blair? Yeah, it's Reagan's face from the poster where she's like smiling. <laughs> yeah, that's the face they use for, uh, you know, one of the oldest internet jump scare videos. Yeah. <laughs> so like the, the, the faces. Yes. People uh, are scared of the faces of the exorcist. We don't like faces that are uh, intentionally distorted. Um, it does something to our brains. I don't know what the word for it is. But we just know it's wrong. for it. Yeah. Um, so for those who don't know The Exorcist, 
somehow. Um, it is based on The Exorcist, which is a novel by William Peter Blatty. Uh, he also provided the screenplay for this, and it is directed by the incomparable, late, great, uh, absolutely a maniac of William Friedkin. And we will talk a little bit about how Friedkin made this movie because that is that merits discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just does. But here's your plot synopsis for The Exorcist. When a young girl is possessed by a mysterious entity, her mother seeks the help of two priests to save her daughter. The old priest is such like a late addition to this movie. Yeah, Max von Sydow was just yeah. like hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's like two priests. I was like, I mean, eventually we get there. Like the old priest is only in this for maybe like 20 minutes. Yeah. And that's why so many people are like, oh, the exorcist is actually Father Karras' story. Yeah, I guess. But I also don't give a flying shit. Dude, he's a cool priest. He yeah. believes in science and he boxes. He's a cool priest who believes in science, but has a crisis of faith because he had his mother uh, institutionalized before she died. Yeah, that was that's that was a sad thing. I... We'll talk about that, I guess, a little bit later. Um, but I do love how this movie parallels religion and psychiatric help because they're both of these things are just barbaric treatments. That's very, very true. And something um, fun to kind of point out. I mean, fun is not the operative word here. But we like to have a good time. We like to have a good time. But Father Karras is played by Jason Miller, who is a you know a pretty well known actor. Uh, Jason Miller's son, Joshua John Miller, was one of the writers of The Final Girls. Which we did for our very, very first spooky season. We did for a very first spooky season. And that movie is about, you know, somebody uh, whose mom was a scream queen and kind of coming to terms with the fact that her now dead mom is immortalized as dying on screen. And it is inspired by his own experience of his dad being Father Karras and Mm -hmm. knowing that, like, his dad dies in one of the most famous movies ever made. And like, there are millions of people who have just watched him, his dad die on screen. And now his dad is no longer with him. And I think that that is like very fascinating and kind of beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, weird connection that this movie has to another movie we've talked about. Yeah. Yeah. And so this movie is from 1973. It's a bit older. It's one of our oldest. One of our oldest for sure. I would love to lay a little bit of contextual groundwork of what was the the culture when this movie came to be. So teen movies uh, don't really exist because we did American Graffiti a couple weeks ago, and that's pretty much the start of the teen genre as we understand it Mm -hmm. today. So, yeah, this has no bearing on that. But if you want to look at horror films... Wow, the early 70s is a fucking wasteland. It's weird. It's a weird time. We went through a like hundreds of movies from like the 60s and into the 70s and you know, there's trends. Like horror is always either a response to or a reaction to whatever's going on socially. So, you know, you get your usually uni- war. Yeah. You get your <laughs> universal monsters, you get your like Soviet scares, you get all your atomic your atomic beings. monsters, yeah. Like you get all that sort of stuff. Once you get to like the late 60s, it's like, yeah, we we're moving away from what I would describe as like haunted house movies mm-hmm. where everything feels like vaguely gothic, very, very, very po like anything you've seen Vincent Price in. Yeah, it's very literary based. And in anything its that Elvira made a fun of in Haunted Hills. Mm-hmm. Like anything like that, we're moving away from that. Um Stuff is trying to be Hitchcock, but by this point, Hitchcock's winding down. So there's just like, there's just a no, no one at the throne, essentially. Mm-hmm. And you start to get like Rosemary's Baby, uh, Night of the Living Dead, these these kind of outlier late 60s stuff. And then the Hayes Code 
breaks down and stops being a thing. And it's not until 73 that people really start to get like adventurous and vulgar Mm -hmm. with their horror films. So there's like a five year window between those movies and this where it's like nobody knows what the trend is. Nobody knows what to be making. So it's just all a grab bag of a bunch of weird movies that are like some are very, very good. But it's like usually you can follow a trend with horror films. Mm And that's just not present up until The Exorcist comes out. Yeah, this is definitely a transitionary period for the genre for all of the reasons you stated with the Hays Code going away. So now people are starting to test the waters of kind of what they can get away with yeah. um, and what is still going to be financially viable. Um, but one of the big things that's happening, like we're this movie is kind of marking the shift, is horror movies up until this point were adult movies. Oh, yes. It's about some tortured middle-aged man. Right, or it's about like a family who bought a house. It's, yeah. you know, exploitation was a big deal uh, around this time period. Mm-hmm. We hadn't gotten into kind of the teen scream landscape that we're going to have throughout the 70s, 80s, and up until today. Yeah, forever. Forever, yeah. Um, because the people who were going to see horror movies were mostly adults. So they yeah. were adult stories. This was not a young man's game. No, I mean, Vincent Price, is, like when you look at these like icons of horror and it, you look at the Christopher Lees and the Vincent Prices of the world, they're all old men. <laughs> Even when they're young, they look like old men. Right. They behave like old men. Right, they all have really nice pressed suits. <laughs> yes. There's nothing uh, There's nothing spry about them. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. It's, so, all, it's like borderline like investigative um, at times. Which before. like honestly works really well for The Exorcist because the pacing of this is like a fucking crime drama. Yeah, it, this is like a medical crime drama for the first hour of this movie, which yeah. I do find really interesting. Yeah, so we'll, we'll talk about that I think a little bit later. But the, the legend of The Exorcist, like it was marketed largely on the myth of people being like, so scared that they were throwing up and passing out and dying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like we watched the cursed films episode on shutter about this one. And there's people just being like, Oh my God, I passed out in the first 30 minutes. I'm like, nothing happens in the first 30 minutes. Right. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, but yeah, like this is one of those original ones that you see marketed, like how we did Blair witch or how we did paranormal activity where they show like, you know, night vision footage of someone going like oh, in the theater and be like, people are puking and throwing up. People are vomiting and terrified. Take them too. out on stretchers. Uh, um, it's one of like the original like mass hysteria marketing ploys for a horror movie, and it worked. Mm-hmm. The Exorcist made like four hundred million dollars mm-hmm. in '70s money, mm-hmm. adjusted for inflation. The Exorcist made like. Something to the tune of two and a half billion dollars, which is banana pants. And, and like, to to like make people understand that, like Barbie is at like one point six billion this year, and it is the highest grossing film of the year. It has been. It, Barbie has total cultural permeation. Mm-hmm. Everyone is aware of Barbie, but also an important detail people don't th- talk about when they talk about like movie gross is that tickets cost a lot less than. Yeah. Which meant more people were seeing this movie than anything that has come out in decades. Yeah, it was probably like a $5 movie ticket compared to a $20 movie ticket today. Correct, which is the, 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 the amount of people who tuned in to watch a young girl stab herself in the vagina with a crucifix. Mm-hmm. Like, that is one of the most intensely vulgar things that I could imagine in, like, the 70s. And that's probably mm-hmm. why people were horrified. And then it was nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sure was. <laughs> Which, like, it's 
it's a really well-made movie. And this kind of leads to a different discussion for context that I think is fun because it is the first horror film to ever be nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. It, it Should it have been the first film? Not necessarily. There's probably others that could have done it. But like, it's so well-made and it's kind of speaking a language that people who don't watch horror films can understand mm-hmm. because it is like procedural. It has medical aspects. It has crime aspects. It has, you know tortured male lead which you know the oscars do love mm-hmm. uh it's got all of these elements that are not your tr- normal trademarks of horror much less like theatrical horror mm-hmm. you know boogeyman monster kind of horror uh i think that that also makes it seem like it's elevating the genre in a way that people were not accustomed to mm-hmm. but when you look at the other six or seven films that are nominated for best picture in the horror genre with the exception of Get Out, people will bicker and argue on whether or not the remaining ones actually are horror films. And for those who don't know the other films that have been nominated for the Oscars for Best Picture. It's like Silence of the Lambs. That's, well, that's a crime thriller. Yes. Silence of the Lambs, people will say, is a crime drama. Black Swan, people say, is a psychological thriller. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sixth Sense, same thing. It's a, Jaws is like an adventure thriller. Yeah, Jaws is a popcorn adventure movie. Um, Shape of Water it's is a romance. a romance fantasy film, despite the fact that he is a fucking gill man, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um And not wanting to declare these movies as horror, I think, is twofold. It's like, one, there are the people that look down on horror, so they don't want to admit that a really good movie is also a horror movie. Mm -hmm. But then there's also assholes like myself, where (laughs) in some of these movies, I'm like, no, that isn't a horror movie. You just marketed it as a horror movie because you wanted the uh, fandom of horror people to come out and support your movie um, because you know that it's a little bit too scary for, you know, your your movie's going to scare the straights a little bit, but horror fans are a bunch of sickos. Um, I mean, no one loves their genre more than horror fans. Yeah, there's no such thing as a romantic comedy convention. Like, that doesn't exist. God. (laughs) <laughs> the, the moms would go nuts. But um, no, I mean, there, there's definitely a lot to that. I think that also there's people out there who are, um, I don't know, that they, they want to prove that they're tougher and can hang more than people. So they're just like, um, it's not a good horror movie. I don't think it's a horror movie because I wasn't scared. Like, it's not even scary. Right. Okay. So so you get into like elitist scum of, of in the horror community about it. Yeah. So, okay. I do want to talk about that a little bit as well. Just kind of just like a general aside. Because this movie does have the reputation of being, like, the scariest movie ever. So then everyone has to be a contrarian going, it's not even that scary, so it's not good. Well, yeah, there's the contrarians who are like, it's not that scary, so it's not good. But also, scares are, one, subjective, two, large, our fear responses are largely, um, we don't really have control over the things that make us scared. Uh, They're often rooted in our lived experiences or just our natural fight, flight, fawn, freeze, all of those like responses. Mm-hmm. So again, like you don't really have control in in that regard. Um, but it's that lived experience that is really, really important to identify because the world of 1973 is very different than the world of 2023. Oh, for sure. Like we're not nearly as sacred as a as a culture in the west of course um we're not as sacred as a culture church is not as important as it once was oh no like people who are very like it matters a lot to them like they're they're choosing to just separate themselves from a lot of other people 
Yeah, like people just grow up in more secular households across the board as a as a general sort of thing. There are obviously still religious people there. They mm -hmm. haven't gone away, but it's not the like the massive majority voice the way that it once was. No, there's people very upset that they can't more justifiably be like, we're a Christian nation. And I was like, well, a lot less now than we were 50 years ago. Exactly. So a lot of the fear in this movie, which is the idea of demons, which is the idea of like, you know, God failing you for a second. That is a horrifying thought to a lot of people, but it's not as horrifying to, you know, people who are coming of age now. You mean me as a 10 year old who was like, right, because yeah, you, didn't know, you didn't devils believe in aren't demons. real. I'm not scared. Exactly. Ghosts aren't real. I'm not scared of being possessed. Yeah. So um, that kind of goes away. Obviously, the effects are a lot different. And also, so good, they are really good. They, they look do so good. They do hold up really well, but like, they don't. Like, you can tell, like, when the beds start shaking, like, that's, like, the same kind of effect you would see in, like, a haunted house. Yes. Like, so people know things aren't real anymore. Like, we know this. And also, The Exorcist has kind of been done and redone 10 bazillion times by every single Exorcist movie that has come out since then. Oh, we have just been inundated with possession movies like this mm -hmm. for, like, 15 years. Like, Hauntings and possessions have been, like a nonstop trend for so long. I'm really tired. Yeah, they really did be, like, The Exorcist is the blueprint for this, which is why so often when you see these exorcism movies, there's going to be a girl in a nightgown. There's going to be somebody doing uh, an extreme layback and contorting their body mm -hmm. to, to show that that's what's going on. Their voice is going to change and it's going to get, you know, scarier sounding. They're mm -hmm. going to have different wounds that appear on the body. And some of them are rooted in, you know, biblical stories or religious doctrine for sure. But the majority of them are based on The Exorcist to mm -hmm. the point that when people now do quote unquote investigations on exorcisms, they do tests to see, are you just parroting things you've learned from exorcism movies? Mm -hmm. um, they go into it in a little bit more of detail on the Cursed Films episode on The Exorcist, so I don't wanna spend too much time on it. Um, that can be a little extra homework for all of you. But like this has become what people's concept of possession and exorcisms look like that you like it, it's hard not to know like how much has just been absorbed by osmosis by so many people sure but like even like thinking about the concept of like whether or not the exorcist is scary which like i'm not going to say i'm scared of it because i don't get scared by things but i would say it's a very uh effectively visceral film definitely but think about it in the context that it comes out in the previous year in 1972, like the Pope was like, the, the Pope basically had to make a formal announcement that we as a society don't fear the devil anymore. Right. And like, that's a problem. <laughs> and then William Friedkin kicked down the door and was like, you sure about that? Yeah. So like, you have to think about that in twofold where you have some people who are, you know, deeply religious and it's like, God has failed you. God did not protect you. This little girl has been corrupted by an evil spirit. And that's scary. Mm -hmm. Or on the alternative side, you have all of the people for the last like seven, eight years who've become like very spiritual. Mm -hmm. You know, they've, they've developed like the hippie free love kind of thing where they've developed a broad general sense of spirituality and religion. You, honestly, like the Beatles going to India probably has a lot to do with that. Mm -hmm. But like. This is now them going like, hey, you thought the devil wasn't real, mm -hmm. but guess what? The devil's real. Mm -hmm. So it's effective whether you believe in like a Christian Catholic sort of concept of angels and devils, mm -hmm. but it also works if you don't believe in that.
Definitely. So like, you know, it's you, you did a real good job of doing both. Well, and even if you are a non-believer in terms of the the religious side of it, this was also pitched as a true story because the book that Blatty wrote was based on the story of like a young boy who was apparently allegedly possessed and had to undergo an exorcism. Mm -hmm. So they were able to push like the based on a true story thing. So a lot of people were terrified at the idea of this possibly being real. Like they really did market this in a way that is pretty revolutionary and has been tried to be replicated and failed um, with the very few exceptions ever well, since. There's a lot of things you could get away with when people couldn't just Google stuff at like, the <laughs> drop of the hat. Yeah. Um, like the Texas Chainsaw did the same thing the next year. Yeah. So with all that in mind, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Hello there, prom party. Hopefully you're enjoying your spooky season now that it is properly underway. We've got some fun stuff coming up over on the Patreon this month. Our Sadie Hawkins dances, we're just covering some some boys, getting getting some stuff done. <laughs> we're doing uh, the classic teen boy movie of The Lost Boys and the tragically underseen Vampires vs. the Bronx. It's about gentrification. They throw a dobo in a vampire's face. It's awesome. For our Musical Milestones episode, we are covering a, a bit of a broad topic rooted around a single subject with Nightmare Before Christmas, Hot Topic Culture, Eyeliner Boys, and Spooky Girls. So we're just continuing BJ's trip down memory lane as a former emo scene kid. <laughs> We've also crossed the halfway point of Mike's so-called life. We actually just did a Halloween episode last month, so I'm curious to see where we're going to end up going this month because... This show goes a lot of weird places I wasn't prepared for. In addition to all of those episodes, you can look forward to our monthly playlist. It is a bit spooky this month. BJ's wellness newsletter and access to the always important for our knowledge suggestion box. In addition to just, you know, the vast back catalog that we have available over there. If at this time you're not able to support the podcast, we totally understand as always. Just feel free to share us with any friends who you think enjoy what we do or give us a five-star rating wherever it is you listen to your podcasts because doing so is truly the best way that you can help our podcast grow and continue to do its thing for ever, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Thank you so much. And now back to the movie. And you all are getting some very seasonally spooky rain in the background, possibly. Because <laughs> it's raining a lot very suddenly. And I don't know if that's going to create ambiance or if I'm just saying things and you can't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So to kick things off, I think we should actually start with Chris mm -hmm. McNeil, played by Ellen Burstyn. I know normally we start with the teen girl, but I think laying the groundwork of Chris is really important. So as this mother figure, how do you feel about her? She's just trying her damnedest. She really is. She seems like such a nice mom. Like her and Reagan have a very, very sweet relationship. Um, this is something that I think a lot of exorcist films kind of don't do effectively. Um, like I, I'm a don't bore us, get to the chorus kind of person when it comes to a lot of uh, media. But I think that this movie, seeing the slow progression of the possession in Reagan is very, very effective. And seeing how her mother responds to that and still wants to save her daughter is a very 
uh, is, is, is very well done. I also think that she just, she just wants her kid to be happy. Like when there's the phone call with the dad who mm-hmm. she can't get a hold of mm-hmm. and is missing her, his daughter's birthday. Mm-hmm. Oh, first of all, that sounds a lot like my household growing up. It's just like that level of uh, yelling intensity. Mm-hmm. Just, just to give you an all an idea of that. But she just wants to protect her kid from even like being disappointed. Mm-hmm. So if she's trying to like protect her from like, you know, minor emotional things that are going to like hurt her. Like she's powerless against like these bigger things that happen in the film. Yeah, so there is an article, I'm going to be referring to a couple articles throughout this episode, but this one is The Terrifying Power of Girls and Second Wave Feminism Backlash in The Exorcist by Emma Fraser over at Sci-Fi. And in talking specifically about Chris, um, they say, Chris McNeil is a successful actress who can comfortably support her daughter. She has a huge house. She has a small staff to help out, including someone to cook and another person to deal with the pesky rats making noise in the attic. She socializes, flirts, and still has time to take an interest in her daughter's arts and crafts, as well as plan a fun birthday trip sightseeing around the nation's capital. But a close bond with her daughter and a happy atmosphere aren't much protection against demons when there isn't an official quote unquote man of the house. The absence of Reagan's father peppers many conversations even before the situation deteriorates. Nevertheless, he doesn't deserve any father of the year trophies as he can't even be bothered to phone his daughter on her birthday. Mm -hmm. He's in Europe. And as Chris screams down the phone to his assistant, it is clear there is some unresolved tension between the exes. Can the devil sneak in because there is no man to stop this infection? Before events take a turn towards extreme profanity and head spinning, Reagan's bedroom window is a source of constant concern. The movie opens with Chris alone in her bedroom. The amount of stuff strewn across the double bed reveals she is the only person occupying the space. And when she goes to check on her sleeping daughter, she is disturbed by the open window and the curtain billowing in the chilly fall wind. Later, when the investigating officer, Lieutenant William Kinderman, comes knocking regarding the suspicious death of movie director Burke Dennings, he comments, a draft in the fall when the house is hot is a magic carpet for germs. A seemingly innocuous remark from a germ-obsessed investigator, but one that also suggests that Chris does not do enough to protect her daughter from this unique form of infection. Mm -hmm. And I love that description because... Let me make it like abundantly clear. I do not think that Blatty or Friedkin are trying to be like single moms are bad. And that's the message of this movie. I don't think that's what's happening. Single moms certainly are like an anomaly during this period. But yes, this is an anomaly during this period that I think gets lost when like newer audiences revisit this film because it's such a non-issue now for people to be a single mom. But this was like This is a mom who's single and can provide. Yeah, this is shocking in the 70s that not only is she a single mom, but she is like such a wealthy, successful woman that she has staff, that she has this huge house. Like that is kind of unheard of. And there is this like terrifying fear of the breakdown of the nuclear family at this time Mm -hmm. because this is also the same year that Roe v. Wade uh, went into effect. Rest that fucking soul. Um, So Roe v. Wade went into effect. A lot of states um, now have legalized no-fault divorces, which means women can just fucking leave if they want. So we have more women in the workforce. This is a big time of change, like socially speaking. And that was terrifying to a lot of people because, well, what are we going to do if women can just raise kids on their own? 
Mm-hmm. Like that was scary to people. And I mean, it's still kind of scary to some people today. Losers. That's who it's scary to. <laughs> um, but like that was a big deal. So there is this like weird undercurrent going throughout this entire movie that like is was Reagan vulnerable because she didn't have a father figure. Like, is this a sign that like women can't be left to their own devices? Like, I don't think that was the intention by any stretch of the imagination, but when you include the cultural context of like the second wave feminism and everything that was going on at this time, it's impossible not to see it. Mm -hmm. And boy, second wave did stuff. Second wave hasn't aged well in this, 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 but second wave was doing things at the time. I mean, we covered bottoms last week where there's even a joke of like, oh, it's second wave all over again. Uh Second wave feminism did a lot of great things, but it wasn't intersectional. It was very individualistic. There was a lot of problems with it that we're still feeling the effects of to this day. Uh Um, But there were good things that happened. So it's a it's a both and sort of situation. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I love Chris McNeil because Chris as a character is fighting for her daughter this whole movie. And I think it's because she does have that connection to her of not just, you know, mother daughter, but also she's been through this. She knows what it is like to be a teen girl. She knows Mm -hmm. what, how, like how scary the world can be at this age for young girls and to not be listened to. And she's constantly like everybody she goes to, to like ask for help, are all doctors and, you know, police officers and psychologists and whoever. They're all men. And they're also not listening to her at all. None of them fucking listen to her. And, like, I think it's so important to have her be this figure of, like, you, you're you not listening. Like, you don't understand. And to just watch all of these men just either dismiss her or write her off or think she's crazy or what have you because that's the reality for so many people. Mm-hmm. And it starts around this age. Honestly, it starts younger. Like, we discount little girls very early. But especially when you're, like, coming of age and starting to... When you're a tween. When you're a tween. A term that didn't exist yet. Yeah, yeah. you're gaining that autonomy and, like, you're coming into your own. People definitely don't fucking listen to you at that age because you're just a child who fucking cares. Mm -hmm. She's heavily sedated. She'll probably sleep through tomorrow. What's going on in there? How could she fly off the bed like that? Pathological states can induce abnormal strength, accelerated motor performance. For example, say a 90-pound woman sees her child pinned under the wheel of a truck, runs out and lifts the wheels a half a foot up off the ground. You've heard the story. Same thing here. Same principle, I mean. So what's wrong with her? We still think the temporal lobe. Oh, what are you talking about, for Christ's sakes? Did you see her or not? She's acting like she's fucking out of her mind, psychotic. Going back to the sci-fi article, another early warning sign is the Ouija board discovered in the basement when mother and daughter are spending time together. This is a symbol of unwanted spirits as well as an object of curiosity for every sleepover ever. Reagan's calm response to having used it, chatting to Captain Howdy, suggests that a tr- there's a troubling undercurrent in a house that is otherwise full of love. The many expert men Chris takes her daughter to see offer up drugs and invasive medical tests as a solution. But when science fails, a more spiritual path is required. 
Chris is not religious, although she has found herself fascinated by the intensity of Father Karis whenever she has walked past his place of work and worship. Karis is dealing with all his nonsense, blah, blah, blah. You know, that his church is desecrated. If the church can't keep out the devil, then how can a single mom? Mm-hmm. Like, that is kind of like the crux of, of this movie to me, is this idea that like, if all of these men can't stop it, then how in God's name could this single mom? And it's like, because she has the one thing that none of you fuckers have. She has love for that child. Mm -hmm. She loves that child more than any of you will love anything in your miserable fucking lives. Yeah. <laughs> like, you cannot do that separation. Oh, totally. And like, so as 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 an aside with the Ouija board, uh, something that I, I did some research on the Ouija board. It's been around since like the 1800s, but in the late 60s, that's when uh, Parker Brothers acquired the rights <laughs> to it, and then that's when it started to become more of like a commercial toy as we understand it today. Mm -hmm. And so this was a fairly recent phenomenon. Like think of it as like you know every other piece of like 60s and 70s pastiche where it's like wow the Snoopy snow cone maker. Uh -huh. Wow, the pet rock. <laughs> wow, contacting evil spirits. <laughs> I really want to find one of the Ouija boards that's like the baby pink one that is like Barbie pink with like the big purple letters that they stopped selling because too many parents complained. Mm -hmm. I want one so bad. This I think the they're one's for so girls. cute. Yeah, I, that's what I want. I want the one that's like, this one's for girls. Like, it's just As if girls cute. weren't buying 90% of the Ouija boards to begin right. with. Right. I cannot imagine that there were like a bunch of young boys like trading baseball cards and bubblegum money so they could buy a Ouija board. Whereas girls absolutely would. It's like, Dude, I got babysitting money. <laughs> I would argue that a pink Ouija board would actually probably be safer because so many demons are like men trying to possess women's bodies and they'll go, oh, I don't want to talk through a fucking pink Ouija board. That's a gay board. <laughs> Their toxic masculinity <laughs> as devils would never allow them to contact girls through that. Because like, I don't want the other demons to think I'm gay. <laughs> this is an idea for a short film in my head. Uh, none Dude, of you steal this idea. <laughs> I was concocting so many stupid things in my brain. I was like, man, what if Indiana Jones discovered Pazuzu? And this Wait, just we turned into a different movie. Yeah, because the opening is in Iraq, and you know they're looking at like all of the different, uh, <laughs> like the, all the different things. And Harmony's like, Indiana Jones theoretically could have found these, and I'm like, you're right. Yeah, he's been in the game for a while, and by the end of like the decade, like the Indy's doing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> The sci-fi article also referenced uh, Barbara Creed's uh, book, Woman as Possessed Monster. Uh, that's an essay in the text, The Monstrous Feminine, Film Feminism and Psychoanalysis and Talking About the Exorcist. Uh, the crux of this section is to highlight that the monstrous woman is almost always in relation to her mothering and reproductive functions. Chris McNeil cannot control her temper or language when dealing with discussing Reagan's absent father. Her inability to refrain from obscenities is infecting Reagan's language, or so we're led to believe when the doctor asks about her daughter's extended vocabulary. Chris turns into a monster when her ex-husband is mentioned, and because we never see Reagan's father, it is easy to put all the blame onto the visible parent and her so-called modern lifestyle. The theme of urban and spiritual decay is linked to a decline in proper familial values through the McNeil family. Well, on top of all of this, like her being like a mom about town, the dude that she's sort of involved with but not involved with is like the director Burke. And he is a just dreadful man. 
Like, he is a drunk. He's casually calling, like, Swedish dudes Nazis in the middle of, like, casual dinner parties. Like, he is just an unpleasant person to be around. Yeah, I agree. So it's just like, oh, man, what's this say about mom maybe being involved with the director of the movie she's in? And he sucks so much. (laughs) God. And like the whole thing about like, you know, blaming Chris for Reagan's language when so clearly this language is like beyond what Chris is saying. Like Chris is basically being like, fuck my husband. He sucks. Yeah. Like that's her language. As opposed to like your mother sucks cock in hell. (laughs) Or like lick me. Like that's not, she's not getting that from her mom. You fucking weirdos. Like what kind of life do you think she's living? Um, So this article also references the work of patron saint, in my eyes, Carol J. Clover's Men, Women, and Chainsaws, um, discussing that this movie is also one that features men who want to poke and prod at Reagan's body and mind. Uh, Reagan acts out aggressively, including attempting to bite at one psychiatrist's genitals because her body's being attacked and she's fighting back the only way that she knows how. Clover explains that possession movies with a woman at the heart often revolve around putting the female body to some sort of formal trial. In the case of The Exorcist, Reagan is subjected to multiple medical tests, followed by hypnosis in an attempt to find a scientific reason for her behavior. And later, Father Karras explains that exorcisms are no longer practiced as science has unlocked the mysteries of these ailments, whereas Reagan would no doubt have been accused of witchcraft if this were Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. But now there are more logical explanations. But never, never Nevertheless, centuries have passed and teen girls are still at the center of fear and panic. Oh, yeah. Instead of, you know, this being her being a witch or uh, some other form of mysticism, they get to go ahead and put her under like an x-ray machine that that sounds and functions like heavy machinery at a construction site. Mm -hmm. It is terrifying. Yeah. It's very, very scary. Like when they're going through just like the the different frames oh, of her like, MRIs. Junk. Yeah, it like it has the same kind of visceral effect of the winding of the camera in Texas Chainsaw. Mm-hmm. Because I remember being a kid the first time I saw Texas Chainsaw and like that opening where it's the winding, that sound was so scary to me because I was not around for flashbulb cameras, Mm -hmm. so that's completely alien to me. So then I hear it and I'm like, ooh, I don't like that. And my parents had to be like, that's what a camera sounds like Yeah, just these unpleasant mechanical sounds. Well, I mean, you also have that now where like phones will make camera noises, but they don't have lenses. Right, never. We just like like it. (laughs) You just, it's to let you know the picture was taken. Yeah, or like some, uh, what is it, electric cars, like the fancy ones will have fake sounds in them because the car's too quiet and men are like, it's not powerful. Powerful enough. I yeah. need. I need people. I need to be able to rev it and let people know that I drive a powerful car. Right. It's, it's so like weird. we're putting fake mechanical noises into things because there is something to that. But like, it's the happy medium of something not being like a post puncher mm-hmm. for like a fence and a gentle camera flash. <laughs> like there, there, there's a noise in between those things, and this is on the far more aggressive, intense angle of these. So what Carol J. Clover says about the trial of the body gets into one of my most favorite uh, sort of film theory approaches to possession movies is that The Exorcist comes out in 1973, which is the same year as Roe v. Wade. And Roe v. Wade is about, you know, reproductive freedom, bodily autonomy, and essentially the ability to take something out of your body that you don't want to be there. Like take it at its like most bare bones, basic assessment. That's what it is. The ability to say, I don't want this in my body. Get it out. In a more 
general sense, you're expelling a sickness in a mm-hmm. more uh, this sense that you're talking about. You're exercising. Are you you implying that Father Karras is uh, performing an abortion in this movie where the church saves the day? Yes. I'm 100% saying that. Cool. (laughs) Possession movies. Are you saying he gets pregnant at the end? Ooh. Male pregnancy. Love that for him. (laughs) Um, Mr. Mom. (laughs) No, that's not. No, that's not. Mr. Mom's with Keaton, which was, what's the one with Arnold? I've never seen it. I've only ever seen the stills. What is it? Is it Junior? I guess. Okay. I've never actually watched that one. You've never seen the one where Arnold gets pregnant? I've only seen the poster where it's Arnold with a pregnant belly. Where, we need to contact Mallory O'Mara. She just had the summer of Arnold. <laughs> uh, but but when you look at possession films, they are like nine times out of ten kind of like a one-to-one uh, of an allegory about you know bodily autonomy and reproductive justice and sure. abortion and not wanting to have this because exorcisms – historically and possessions historically have affected people of all gender identities in film. It is overwhelmingly presented in the bodies of women, specifically young fertile women. Uh And it's very hard once you like think about when exorcism movies became really popular now and what was going on at that time, Roe v. Wade, not to see the parallels of the idea of being possessed by a demon and your body being used as a vessel to house and foster uh, something that you don't want that is going to irreparably change your body, your body chemistry, your mind, your behavior, your future. Like it's, it's so blatantly clear that there is a connective tissue here that cannot be separated in I mean, this subgenre. Even just in terms of using women, the classic one that always gets brought up is like the traits of the final girl. Mm-hmm. And the final girl, there's many reasons why it's always a final girl and rarely a final boy. But the big one is because audiences are more inclined to feel sympathy towards a young woman, particularly a young virgin. And then they're more likely to cheer when she ends up, you know, rising up and protecting herself. But like, Ultimately, they're sympathetic because she's a virgin. They're, 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 that, there's something that appealing about the uh, young fertility of that, the, the the purity of that. And you have that present in something like Reagan where it's like, oh, it's a young girl. She has a sweet face of an angel mm-hmm. and she's being corrupted. Mm-hmm. And so going back to the sci-fi article... Uh, puberty, possession, and witchcraft go hand in hand in both horror and in the real-life Salem accusations of 1692. When it comes to young boys and the occult, they are impacted before puberty usually. Damien in The Omen is five years old. The boys in films like Insidious and The Prodigy are younger than Reagan. Danny in The Shining is too young to understand what he can do, so he lacks power because he cannot harness his abilities. A pubescent boy doesn't draw on the same outdated purity notions as a girl on the verge of adolescence. Why this girl, Father Karras asks in the director's cut. It is less about this particular girl. Rather, it is what she symbolizes. A 12-year-old boy wouldn't make the audience or the priest despair at how vile humanity is. Mm-hmm. Reagan's nightgown is incredibly childlike and girlish. Her daytime jeans and shirt attire is relatively gender neutral, but is soon covered in the disgusting bodily fluids of blood and vomit. This is her monstrous feminine body. Her skin erupts in a tangled, filthy mat. She urinates on the carpet, spews green bile, and bleeds from the genitals, says Barbara Creed. 
Reagan's body is represented as a body in revolt. Yes. And isn't puberty nasty? And like, so that's exactly it is like this idea that puberty makes us all like inherently impure. I mean, it makes us gross because we get gross. <laughs> like, like we, we go through these weird, like growth spurts and like, we start walking like baby giraffes. Cause none of us know what we're doing anymore in our own bodies. Mm-hmm. Our skin gets weird. We get greasier. We smell weird. Um, but in the instance of like, young girls like we start to be viewed as like soiled in a way because now we've hit puberty and now we bleed and now we we're gross like we become gross so to speak and like that is like that's the loss of childhood because we're not these pure angelic little beings anymore now we're disgusting we're we're becoming monstrous femmes we're women well, like that also ties into just like the whole of this movie, which is like it is obscenely vulgar. It's so vulgar in ways that are like shocking even today. Yeah. Because like, we've seen a lot of gross yeah. stuff in horror movies. We've had to constantly elevate everything. Like we went through like the really um mean, disgusting era of the two thousands horror. Like we we've seen how far things can go, and yet this movie is like so much more vulgar than most of them. And there, there, there's something that can be said about like young sexuality where it's like lick me or like masturbating. And like, obviously we view female sexual desires as vulgar as a society, especially in this country. But beyond that, like even just in terms of, of, of narrative, this is exactly what a demon would do. Like vegan, like that, that's a thing that a lot of possession movies don't kind of understand is that like, the demons would do the most vile things imaginable. Uh huh. Evil Dead understands that. Like a deadite is such a better version of like what a demon would do because they want to torture other people. They want mm-hmm. to be mean for their own pleasure. They're sadistic. Yeah. Like fundamentally, they're sadistic. Mm-hmm. And tapping into like the fears of like young female sexuality is not only like great sub great subtext, but also like. It's one of the most vile things that you could show someone on screen Mm -hmm. and it works in universe and as a visual element. And this is definitely backed up by like sociology practices and psychology Mm -hmm. because on a very G rated, I mean, it's not technically not G rated, but like much more G rated level. It has been proven fact that when you are teaching your kids like how to avoid stranger danger or whatever, one of the best things that you can do is teach them to say a like very inappropriate swear word like motherfucker Mm -hmm. or bitch or something that's really powerful because little kids, if they're screaming like, wah, wah, help me, help me, people like won't pay attention. But if a kid goes, get your hands off me, motherfucker, Mm -hmm. people are more apt to turn around because they want to see like, what? Because you're not used to hearing a child swear. Yeah, like like, so either you have this like morbid curiosity of like, so that kid just say motherfucker and like wanting to pay attention or it sounds way more serious to mm-hmm. you because you're not used to a child using that language. Yeah. So like, when you see her saying things like fuck me, like at somebody it's like it hits something like visceral inside the back of our brains where we're like, this is wrong. Something's very wrong here. Well, there's so many things that are wrong with it. And I think that's kind of where a lot of possession movies more recently have kind of missed the boat is like they focus on physical uh, things. Like they contort bodies in ways. They focus on like 
things that I would describe as more grotesque rather than gross. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's just like the benefits of having significantly higher budgets for special effects now, but they're not as effective mm -hmm. and they're not as like viscerally uncomfortable. Like I've, you can go and watch someone who like do ridiculous pop locking and drop it where like dislocate their shoulders and do like really impressive dance moves. Mm -hmm. And I go, wow, that's something. But like, then they do the exact same thing in a possession movie mm -hmm. where it's like, these aren't really, this doesn't connect the same way that like the very visceral things of the exorcist connects. Yeah. Like it doesn't land the same way. And there's a lot of reasons for it. We, we got really close to crossing a lot of lines and cross some lines making this movie. Mm -hmm. So um, I say we, I had nothing to do with this. They. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. Do we, do we want to start talking about, about Linda Blair? Yeah, so let's talk about Linda Blair. So Linda Blair is playing Reagan McNeil, who is 12 in this movie, but the actor herself at the time was 14. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where we get into a little bit dicey territory in terms of the ethics of movie making, um, safety precautions. We're going to get into some very complicated discussions and mm -hmm. some stuff that might be a little hard to hear. Um, so this role earned Linda Blair a Golden Globe nomination for Best Supporting Actress. And she's so good. Because she's incredible. Like, even though, like, a lot of the voice isn't her, it's ADR. Yeah, it's Mercedes McCambridge. Yeah, so a lot of that is in there. And it, it follows a very similar thing to how, like, Billy is in Black Christmas, where it's erratic and it's jumping voices, it jumps accents, and it just does not, it doesn't settle, settle in any kind of way that makes you feel comfortable it's not just like we pitched down the voice and it's a demon voice and you go oh i understand that like it's constantly jarring mm -hmm. even setting that whole thing aside you can watch this and go linda blair is so talented yeah she's incredible in this movie um and so the things that are difficult with this is a couple things one uh, William Friedkin's a madman. He oh. was he was a genius. Is he ever? And he was nuts. Yeah. Um, is the best way that I can describe him. My favorite thing about him is any interview he does. Oh my god, they're so fucking. His funny. interviews are like, it, after he died, similar to when James Caan died, people started digging up stories and interviews about him, and I'm like, this man is the funniest person. <laughs> like, what was it? He was like, Al Pacino wouldn't talk about cruising for a long time. That pussy. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, like that shit is so funny. <laughs> Yeah, like Freakin is like they just don't make them like that anymore, and I don't know if that's necessarily a good Probably thing or a bad thing. The best <laughs> in a lot of cases. Like I watched a, uh, I think it was GQ did a sit down thing with Martin Scorsese and talked about some of his most iconic movies. And Scorsese was like talking about Taxi Driver, and he's like, yeah, in the seventies, like it was the time for the directors to rise back up and reign supreme, and like we we just went nuts before we got like tied down in the studio system in like the eighties and stuff like that. And I was like. Probably a good thing that they they pulled a lot of you back because like Agreed. there was a lot of cocaine and really unethical stuff happening in the seventies. Yeah, and there was a lot of unethical stuff on this film. So, for example, uh, the scenes where it looks like they're cold and they can see their breath, it's because they really shot in like sub-zero temperatures. That room really was just that cold, and she really is just in a nightgown, so that's rough. Um, he would occasionally uh, just fire a gun on set to scare the shit out of people. Because he wants them to jump correctly. Yeah. Like, this is these things where, um, I think I mentioned this on a recent episode, where 
a lot of people will make defenses for older filmmakers or older films where it's like, well, I mean, yeah, but they got the shot. And, you know, maybe, you know, is it not worth art if it produced like a really compelling piece of art? I'm like, well, if, if an actor wants to go method and do some psycho thing, like I only ate cold SpaghettiOs out of a can for six months to really set myself in an emotionally fragile state for this role that you're electing to do that. No one's making you do that. However, a director gets to tell people what to do. Mm -hmm. No one's going to stop the director from doing the crazy things they're going to do. And in most cases, you probably could have gotten the same results through other means, or at the very least, it would have been, what, 5% worse? That's still pretty damn effective. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff that happened on this set that did not need to happen. And the fact that, like, Linda Blair practically broke her back. Yeah. So they hooked her up to a, like, mechanical rig in order for the, like, bed scenes and for, like, the levitation scenes. And um, they fractured her lower spine. They basically put her on, like, a mechanical bowl. Yeah. And just let her loose. Now, in. To be fair, like she was strapped in and then the straps came loose. Right. They were not they were not rigged properly. Yes. She got severely hurt. So that was not like active ignorance. That was just a problem. It just it was shoddy worksmanship. However, that is the sh shot they did use for the movie. Yeah. So the shot of her like crying in pain because she just fractured her spine. That's the shot that's in the movie. So that pain is forever immortalized. Like mm -hmm. that's. That's a problem. Um, obviously, like the just the shooting locations were not great. Um, he also engaged in physical assaults uh, on set, uh, <laughs> slapping one of the priests in the face in the hopes that it would result in a better emotional response. Mm -hmm. um, these are all very unethical. I don't agree with any of this. No. I personally have no love for psychotic directors doing psychotic stuff like this. No, I don't I don't like it at all and it does require me to hold multiple truths when watching movies like this. Like I can look at The Exorcist and be like this is an extremely effective movie. It is brilliant. It's so well it is made. terrifying. Yeah. And it was made under terrible work conditions that should not have been allowed. It's a matter of using ands and not buts. Correct. Because like what I said in one of the episodes recently, I think it was Bottoms, was like just correcting your language of being like, yeah, I mean, Friedkin did all of this stuff, but he got the shots he wanted, but the movie's really good. It's like, no, he did all the things he did and the movie's good. You're not yeah. making excuses for it. Yeah, they're they're living together, which they have to be. Yes. Um, but some of the things that are the most awful, at least in my opinion, like fracturing your spine is really fucking bad, obviously. Like, I'm not trying to discount that. But at least that one was not like a malicious active choice. Right. Some of the things that happened following the, the film's release are so troubling that I, like, it just makes me love Linda Blair more than I already do oh, yeah. because I just I cannot believe she's been able to do she this. She seems like a nice lady. She like she likes her dog. She's a, she's a big animal activist. Bless her. But like we're not even talking about like oh hey there's a murderer in the exorcist. He wasn't a murderer at the time. This that was later, so it's not even like a really right. interesting thing to talk about. No. And also he's like a background character in like a hospital scene, so it's so inessential anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to reference an article that was written uh, over at my house at Slash Film uh, about how The Exorcist changed Linda Blair forever. 
Following the premiere, reporters engaged in invasive speculation concerning Blair's mental health, leading to unfounded claims that she'd suffered a mental breakdown as a result of having to film the extremely graphic and unsettling scenes. Audiences were also shocked by her convincing portrayal of demonic possession, and influential Christian evangelist Billy Graham was among them. Fuck Billy Graham. Oh, well, yeah, of course. Billy Graham's the fucking All my worst. homies hate Billy Graham. Yeah. Um, after his declaration that the film was tainted by the influence of the devil himself, Unhinged zealots began sending the 14-year-old Blair death threats and hate mail claiming that she was glorifying Satan due to her participation. The backlash was so severe that it began to pose a threat to her safety, and Warner Bros. had to hire a bodyguard for her. Mm -hmm. Blair also had a deal with a public that seemed to forget that she was a child, as she was frequently bombarded with questions concerning the existential and spiritual content of the film during interviews. Blair herself has said that the questions only added to the pressure that she was already under, and that it was an awful thing to go through as a teenager who didn't have an understanding of how the religious aspects of the film were grounded in reality. And it's certainly easy to understand how the barrage of inconsiderate questions coupled with the backlash resulted in emotional distress for Blair. She was obviously very much typecasted following this. People only wanted to put her in movies. It took her many years to finally come to terms with her relationship with this film. Oh, yeah. She's obviously embraced it in ways that, you know, I'm surprised she has because if she wanted to say, fuck this movie forever, it like ruined my life, I don't think anyone would blame her. Yeah, totally. Um, because... The thing that makes me so upset when I hear about like people following 14-year-old Linda Blair around is that it does further emphasize the point of like how like young girls are treated differently than young boys because she is a young girl who is possessed and then survives and yet she was stalked and harassed by a bunch of weirdos. Not the people who made the movie. Not the people who made the movie, Not but the guy her. who wrote the story. Not anybody else in this movie, her. No, the 14-year-old girl. Meanwhile, and this is something that uh, Phil Noble Jr. over at Fangoria pointed out in the Cursed Films episode. You're a real one, Phil. Phil, always walking that walk. Love you, Phil. Um, is that no one did this to the kid from The Omen who was a five-year-old who played the literal antichrist, the literal spawn of Satan. Mm -hmm. No one gave a flying shit about that kid, and that movie won on Oscar. So it's well, like... For, like, sound. It doesn't matter. It's a, <laughs> it was for score, and it was great. Still. Um, but still, like, you know, so a girl who was essentially taken advantage of by a demon without her consent, without, like, any of that was harassed relentlessly for years, but then a kid who plays the actual Antichrist is left alone. I'm sure people are saying that, like, well, maybe she was asking for it for the demon. Of course. Of course I'm they sure are. I'm sure that would be their justification. Yeah, because... If oh, she well, wasn't she such a, a sinner, then there's no way that he could have invaded. If she didn't invaded. have a single mom, if she didn't have what... Like, oh, it makes me so fucking irritated. If like, she wasn't in her basement playing with a spooky board and making clay dragons... Oh, God, it just... Oh, it bothers me so much. It makes me so frustrated every time I think about it. And that's not to say that, like, um, y'all should have actually been also stalking that five-year-old boy. Like, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is leave kids alone. Like, leave I mean, them the fuck alone. People have weird relationships with stuff in general. Like, um, like Nurse Ratchet. Mm -hmm. Like, people, like, sent that lady death threats, too. Like... But they, yet they don't send them to any of like the vile men who are in movies. No, it's so it's oh, it's so upsetting. Um, or at least not with the frequency anyway. And so the reason that people feel so powerfully about this is because of everything that Reagan McNeil represents as 
a 12 year old girl. Um, so this next article is from Ms. Magazine and it's fascinating because Ms. Magazine was founded around the same time by Gloria Steinem. So to see this article like years and years later, um, but it's what the ever popular exorcist says about female sexuality and uh, whew, okay. Why a little girl? The little girl in question, Reagan, is not so little. Significantly, she is 12, right on the brink of puberty and perhaps more threateningly from a male perspective, sexual awakening. Soon after her possession, she spews language foul enough to shock a sailor and becomes impossible to reason with. Sound familiar? To anyone parenting a teen, it might. Heightening this horror of female adolescence, the little girl masturbates with a crucifix, and then there's her appearance, face cracked and cankered, a grotesquely vivid exaggeration of that alarming condition that makes any teen seek out any acne-fighting potion they think might work. The film treats us to a display of Reagan's various body, bodily fluids, including lots of gross-out menstrual blood. Consistent with other changes related to young adulthood, when Reagan speaks, she no longer sounds like herself, but instead a chorus of sibilant voices issue forth from her. The devil possessing her is not just one being, we learn, but a plurality or host of demons. The idea that a multitude of voices now eclipses hers metaphorically evokes yet another distressing aspect of adolescence, that contradictory time when children individuate from their parents, but ironically seem to surrender all sense of self to peer pressure. As the film unravels, the text begs the question, why is there evil in a world God created? While the subtext asks, is there anything more terrifying than a teenage girl? Hello, Reagan. I'm a friend of your mother's. I'd like to help you. You might loosen the straps, huh? I'm afraid you might hurt yourself, Reagan. I'm not Reagan. I see. Well, then, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. If you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? That's much too vulgar display of power, Karras. Where's Reagan? In here with us. Show me Reagan, and I'll loosen one of the straps. And you're helping all the boys, Father. Your mother's in here with his cash. Would you like to leave a message? I see that she gets it. I just want to. I just want to point out that in the last couple months, we have done thirteen, mm-hmm. like the Parent Trap. Are you mm-hmm. there, God? It's me, Margaret. You're so not invited to my bat mitzvah. And now the exorcist. Mm-hmm. Being 12 or 13 years old comes in many forms. Yeah. Yeah, and it does. Some, and they are all equally horrific in their own unique ways. Definitely. And like the way, but like they all feel like that connective tissue. Like all of them deal with like burdening sexuality and periods and what that feels like. The first time everything changes. It's the first time everything changes. Everything changes again when you're 18, then it changes again when you're 21, and then stuff kind of just goes from yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, give or take, we're all we're all on different schedules. There's no milestones. I'm just I'm just going with like big events of like getting out of school, being able to drink. Right, right, right. Like those those are big general milestones. Right. This is the first time you have a big milestone like that. Yeah, and it's a huge deal. And it is the scariest thing to so many people because it's the first sign that you have that you are not in control of her anymore. Mm -hmm. And that 
terrifies people. Um, and so this Ms. Magazine article also talks about just kind of like the feminine punishment of this movie, which I think gets overlooked a lot. Some have argued that the real subject of The Exorcist is not really Reagan at all, but The Exorcist himself, Father Karras, cosign. Well, he is the titular role, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it is his soul that the devil wants and his crisis of faith that makes him vulnerable to the demon's outrages. Reagan, from this perspective, serves as bait. Is this why Linda Blair's Academy Award nomination was for Best Supporting Actress? But even Karis' storyline reveals anxiety about women's sexuality. In the one unforgettable, cringeworthy line, the devil speaking through Reagan hisses, Your mother sucks cocks in hell, Karis. Really? That's her punishment? Not your mother does endless loads of laundry or dishes in hell? Karis's reaction to this taunt reveals his deep-seated Madonna whore complex. Could somebody's mother also have a sexual identity? Watching this film, it always feels like this primal shocker. More than any other development, this is what makes Karis go mad, surrender his soul, and plunge out the window to his death. The idea of his mom sucking dick how is like dare, so terrifying how to How dare him. old people fuck? My mom <laughs> is a sweet old lady who sits at home and listens to Greek radio. And it's like, <laughs> how do you think you got here, Karis? Uh-huh. Your mama got dicked down at some point. Yeah. Like, what? <sighs> um, but like, that's, th they go on. I really like this part too. The implicit fear of women and their sexuality in this film can perhaps be understood from the subliminal backlash from some of the profound cultural changes occurring through the decade of the 70s. The women's liberation movement and the sexual revolution were in full swing. Gloria Steinem co-founded Ms. Magazine, this very publication. Mary Tyler Moore had her own apartment. And on the darker side, some notorious counterculture femme fatales emerged. Young girls from affluent homes who seemed possessed after falling under the influence of manipulative cult leaders, the Manson family. A year after The Exorcist debuted, Patty Hearst morphed into the SLA's gun-doting Tanya, and a few years earlier, Susan Atkins took part in the grisly Charles Manson-directed murders. Several other horror films from this era are also both fearful and punitive towards their female protagonists, the shortlist including Rosemary's Baby, Carrie, and The Stepford Wives. The fear of youth inherent in The Exorcist almost certainly stems from the societal upheaval taking place when it was written. In the 60s and 70s, there was much talk of the generation gap, as young people resisted the status quo and reached for social justice through student protests, free speech movements, anti-war crusades, and more. The paranoia that a new rebellious generation might rise up and displace the old establishment might explain why Reagan shows no signs of character development after her ordeal. The Exorcist is no coming-of-age tale, but instead appears to be more of a coming-of-age derailed. Reagan is neither empowered nor enlightened by her experiences. After she is finally free of the devil, she hides away to live her life sequestered in oblivion, unable to even recall the violence that has been per perpetrated on her both by the demon and by Father Karras, who in anger nearly chokes her to death. The message is that wayward youth should be brought back into societal compliance by any means necessary, and after that, it is probably best for them to be seen and not heard. I mean, you could say that, like, maybe she just doesn't remember anything because she You know, trauma blocks it out. She was trauma blocked, or maybe she just wasn't there. Mm -hmm. You know? I mean, you would assume she was the one putting help me uh, on her skin and her abdomen from the inside. Mm -hmm. But, like, you know, that that is correct. Mm -hmm. Like, does she learn anything? Does anything happen? It's like, no, nah, some priests die and a, a shitty director falls out a window and mom has a bad time. But, like, at the mm -hmm. end of the day, they just move away. Mm -hmm. And then you get a terrible sequel. Oh, the heretic is so bad. I had somebody at work 
say that I should rewatch it. No, they're wrong. Under the guise of it being a superhero origin story, which at that no, point I think is <laughs> not the point of watching uh, a horror movie then. No. But I will, I respect a bold swing and maybe one day. Hey, at least The Exorcist 3 is genuinely awesome and has the best jump scare ever committed to film. It's so good. It's, it's so good that like it's so fucking they good. put it in Black Christmas 2019 and it's really good in that one too. Yeah, oh, it's so good. Um, and I really like the idea of this being a movie about a coming of age story that is derailed because we talk on the show a lot about the things that happen when you're coming of age that fucking suck because not everybody gets to have an Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. Some people have experiences that are more closely resembling movies like 13 and it's tough and it's rough. And you don't get to come of age in a way that you should. And that's kind of what we're seeing here with Reagan. And it's not to like quote hereditary of like, and what a waste. Like when the daughter dies, like, and what a waste. Maybe if we could have learned something from this, but no, we've got nothing. But like, Mm -hmm. that's kind of what is happening here in The Exorcist. It's like she's gone through this horrible thing. And like nothing comes of it from her. The like worst, the worst thing for like they an move <laughs> un, an undisclosed amount of time, like a terrible thing that one would assume is possibly weeks. Yeah, and like the the person who's going to be the most affected by this is Chris. Mm-hmm. Like mom is not going to be able to like not see this again. And in some instances, I think about like kids who are like like kids who have cancer when they're little, right? Like like the, the St. Jude's kids that you see in commercials sure. all the time. For a lot of these kids, they go through these experiences when they're really, really little. And then they get a little older and like your memory kind of, you know, f- like a, a, fl- a switch flips and you don't remember that far back anymore. So like you can look at photos and know, okay, I went through this, but I don't remember it. Like mm-hmm. I don't remember the doctor's visits. I don't remember these things, but your parents do. And your parents will never forget what that looked like. And like that is going to be seared in their brains forever. And I can't help but feel like very heartbroken in thinking about like Chris and Reagan moving forward, where Reagan like will never fully understand what happened to her and like be able to wrap her head around what happened to her. But Chris is never gonna get those images out of her mind. Oh yeah. She's going to live the rest of her life terrified that this is going to come back for her daughter and she's going to have to go through that again and see her daughter in just the worst possible circumstances imaginable. The worst hell that Reagan will have to remember is that at some point her mom will probably have a mental breakdown and then she'll have to institutionalize her. Yeah. Because sooner or later, like, this is the kind of thing that will eat away at you, right? Yes. We don't give women therapy in the 70s. And... What do you talk to about this? They're going to think you're fucking crazy. Yeah. Any anyone who would have believed it, either you're leaving like your 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 staff, like your maids and stuff, you're leaving them behind or they're dead already. Mm-hmm. No one's going to believe you. And at the time that this episode goes live, um the next day I will have an interview posted on Slash Film where I talked to director David Gorda Green, who made The Exorcist Believer. And in his film, uh, this is not a spoiler, so you don't have to worry about it, but Chris McNeil does return and she's, you know, much older and she's coming in to help what is, you know, a a dual um, possession story. And we learn that she has written a book about her experiences and that people... 
um, you know, from all different cultures, all walks of life have all wanted to talk to her about being involved in an exorcism and what she saw and whatever, whatever. And that is a real thing that happens to Ellen Burstein, the actress, like religious figures and leaders and theology experts from all across the globe have all like reached out to her over the last 50 years to talk to her about religion and possession and bad spirits and pain and like what does it all mean because this movie is so impactful that religious leaders are like I want to talk to the person who worked on the movie Mm -hmm. like knowing that you do have to do a bit of research you do have to like you know throw yourself into that environment for months at a time to make it happen but like that's wild for me to think about is that she like like Ellen just casually has dinner parties with like theological experts because she was in this movie. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's real cool that see, I have not obviously seen this movie. You have, I didn't, I did not realize that this is where the lore of this ends up going Mm -hmm. where it's like, well, I guess she has her shit together. Mm -hmm. Don't know where Reagan goes in this universe, but yeah, she's got her. Yeah. That I can't talk about. Yeah. Yeah. But, But, uh, um, yeah. All right. It's it's pretty that, interesting. That, stuff. That's more optimistic than my very pessimistic view on this, where it's like, oh, she's gonna go the way of Father Karras's mom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we do. If if you are curious to see like what happens to Chris after the events of The Exorcist, she is in The Exorcist Believer, and like that's not a secret. She's in the trailer, <laughs> so you can. You, this, I'm not spoiling anything for you here. Cool. Um, but you can check that out. Um, that. Comes. This is not a paid promotion yeah, in any way. This is us just talking. No, I'm just letting you know. Like this is when it comes out. The same way that I do when I'm like, hey, we're talking about this movie this week. Go we're watch it. We're giving you information. That's that's it. Yeah. So if you want, if you want to know what happens next, uh, that's what happens next because it's ignoring all of the other canons. Because similarly to how David Gordon Green did with Halloween, but uh, I think on that note, since at least it's somewhat positive and not talking about the way that society demonizes and hates girls, mm-hmm. um, the exorcist is asking you to the prom harmony. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you buying her a ticket so she can go on her own? It's a yes. Like I accept the controversial way that this movie was made. But it's easier to process knowing that at the very least, Linda Blair has came out the other side being mostly mostly okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes it a lot easier to deal with than say like The Shining. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it's it's just a really fucking well made movie. Mm-hmm. It's paced so well. Mm-hmm. It's um, I honestly I wish more horror movies would secretly blend in other genre elements where it's like yeah let's just throw in some crime let's throw in some medical drama let's throw in these other elements into this movie. So then it's not just horror movies that are constantly being influenced by horror movies that were influenced by other horror movies. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a metal band that wants to be the a metal band inspired by a metal band. And it's just the sound of metal clanging on top of each other over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Like, I just I think that that's really interesting and I wish we did it more. And that's probably a controversial take. I want horror movies to be less like horror movies. <laughs> um, I want horror movies to stay horror movies, but I want to be able to tell that you were influenced by more than just horror movies. Yes, that's what it is. Yeah. I want horror movies that are less that. 
Yeah, because then otherwise I'm like, oh, so you just really like John Carpenter. Okay. Yeah. I mean, don't we all? <laughs> like, don't we all, He's right? The goat. But like the reason that like these people like John Carpenter and Wes Craven and William Friedkin and you know, whoever were so good is that they weren't just looking to horror that inspired them. They were incorporating like I really like the pacing of a Western. I really mm-hmm. like, you know, this weird French movie. Like I want more genre blending. Yeah, that's why it works so well. Like one of the most upsetting horror movies that isn't a horror movie I saw recently was the Day of the Locust. Mm-hmm. That movie's really fucking good. And every horror movie wants to be this satire, dark satire in, in a very not funny way of golden age Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, Babylon really wants to be this movie. Wow, Pearl really wants to be Day of the Locust. Mm-hmm. And that's a compliment. Yeah. This is not me going, like, they ripped off this movie. It's like, no, compliment. Um, I <laughs> you think, want to be Day of the Locust, complimentary. <laughs> yes, correct. I think both those movies are absolutely phenomenal. But yeah, I, I just that's what I want more out of in, in horror movies. Me too. And on that note, that is the first episode down of Spooky Season. As always, you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor or Blue Sky at Harmony Colangelo. And as always, thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use Title as our theme song. Harmony, what band are you recommending this week inspired by The Exorcist? This was a band put on my radar by friend of the show and all-around cool hot person, Roxy Rosalka. This is Rose Garden Funeral Party, and specifically their album In the Wake of Fire because it's the most recent release of them, but really just go with whatever, follow your heart. Um, They have... uh, very big, like, anthemic, almost like, you know how we had gothic metal in the 2000s, your Within Temptations, your Evanescences, your Nightwishes, bands like that? You have these big, powerful, almost operatic, classical voices, but the band is not a metal band. It's more of, like, a goth band by way of new wave goth. So, like, the way they incorporate synthesizers and melodies is similar to, like, how The Cure would do it. Mm-hmm. So it's very um, brooding and dark, but has like elements of like classic church music and gothic horror, whilst also having like really nice pop elements in a more modern sense. And I think that that works very nicely for the general spooky season vibe, but also this movie. So once again, that's Rose Garden Funeral Party. If you want select tracks, I don't know, go with like Winter Song or Painless or Polaroid or something like that. But like, you know, just. Any of them are good. Awesome. Well, that takes us out. Thank you again for listening. And don't forget, save that last dance for us. Okay, bye. Bye. Megan's double. Same face, same voice, everything. And I'd know it wasn't Megan. I'd know in my gut. 
I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.